Hey everybody and welcome back to the One Thing Podcast. I'm Chris Dixon. Loneliness can mean a whole lot more than just being alone. Today, I spoke with Eric Barker and we talked about what it means to form powerful relationships. Not only the quantity, but the quality and the depth of the relationships that you form. Having a strong community, a powerful network, and deep, meaningful friendships can be the key to living a rich and fulfilling life. Strong relationships are so important and they're also very fragile. And Eric shares with us how growing deeper relationships can in fact be quite simple. And I hope you can take a lot away from this conversation and think about some ways that you can strengthen some of your key relationships, think more about your network, and build a community that supports you and your goals. Hey, everybody. We've got Eric Barker on the podcast with us today. And Eric has his new book out, Plays Well With Others. And in his book, he use some cool questions and answer some cool questions drawing on science to reveal the truth beyond conventional wisdom about human relationships. Combining his compelling story and humor, Barker explains what hostage negotiation techniques and martial, or excuse me, marital uh, arguments have in common and how an expert con man lied his way into a 20-year professional soccer career and why holding views diametrically opposed to our own actually have the potential to become our closest, most trusted friends. I hope I did that justice in, uh, in <laughs> the book there. That's, there's a lot to unpack. But man, what a cool topic to uh, to discuss. So thanks for being here. Oh, it's great to be here, man. Awesome. Well, what's your, what's your background? Tell us a little bit more about what you're up to and, and what got you into this, this subject. Well, I've been, I've been doing my blog looking at like the social science of human beings for like 13 years now. And uh, five years ago, I came out with my first book where I kind of basically looked at success and looked at the, the maxims that we all grew up with, kind of playing Mythbusters, uh, you know, with the maxims of success. You know, do nice guys finish last? Is it what you know or who you know? And that book barked up the wrong tree, you know, Buckley's bestseller, uh, you know, and it, I mean, and hopefully if you're writing a book about success, it should be successful. Otherwise, you probably don't know what you're talking <laughs> about. But um, like, so that was a lot of fun. And then I took this a similar model and I applied it to relationships where it's like we grow up with a lot of, you know, maxims around relationships. You know, love conquers all. A friend in need is a friend indeed. Don't judge a book by its cover. And basically, I decided to get down the rabbit hole, look at the science, talk to the experts and see if those maxims that we grew up with are actually true or not. Oh, that's cool. And 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 when you came to relationships and thinking about how we traditionally think about them, what really stood out for you? I mean, first and foremost, just how critical they are. I mean, especially coming out of a pandemic where we're all cut off. I mean, you know, a UC Berkeley study of over 9,000 people showed that good social relationships can increase your lifespan up to a decade. Uh, that another study showed that, you know, basically your good relationships are second only to genetics in terms of predicting your health. And in terms of happiness, a good, an economic study showed that uh, good social relationships are the equivalent of an extra $133,000 a year. So like our relationships are so critical and we we kind of don't pay enough attention deliberately to them the way we might do, you know, other spheres of our life like career. I, you know, I was, I'm so glad you said that because I was going to ask you, oh, I'll share first. We do, we do trainings and we have tons of conversations and coaching and goal setting. We use uh, a calibration tool to ask people where they want to focus and, and say, Hey, like here's how I'm performing in these different areas of my life. And very rarely do people choose to focus on their relationships as a, a goal they want to set? It's often they go to career and money, like you're saying. And it's in it's interesting because now you're sharing the data and like this is something that we really should be focusing on and prioritizing differently. And I think it's really interesting how we we just don't naturally gravitate towards that. We almost let our relationships happen to us and we aren't very intentional about seeking out uh, the relationships we want to create. Oh, absolutely. I mean, that was that was one of the most interesting things to me when I was looking at the the, the does love conquer all question. I was looking at love and marriage. Um, you know, marital counseling basically doesn't work. You know, it is has it's terribly ineffective. If you follow up with couples a few years later, it's really ineffective. And that's not because the methods don't work. It's because when you look at the research it's that most couples wait too long to go. 
you know, they're not actually monitoring the relationship. It's, it's like, it's, it's like only going to the doctor after you have a heart attack, you know, it's, it's like, and to your point, you know, we don't really monitor it until things really start to go horribly wrong. And that's why marital counseling really isn't that effective because the, usually the average amount of time is after the first cracks in a really, in a marital relationship start to go, people typically wait six years before starting counseling. So it's just too late. And, you know, it's, it's that issue of like preventative care, like with your health, you might exercise, eat right. You don't, you don't try to get healthy only after you get the diagnosis, you know? Oh, that's, yeah. I'm, I can relate to what you're saying that there's an analogy about, you know, you're juggling balls and some of the balls in your life, if, if you think of each one represents like a big, big part of your life, some of them are like rubber. If you drop them, they could bounce, pick it back up, keep juggling. Uh, and then others are like glass and they may, if you drop them, they may shatter completely and it's there and you can't replace or fix and, or they at very least at the very least crack or scuff and you can't, you can't polish that out. And it's that, that's what I relate to when you say that. Yeah. I mean, what was really really interesting to me was a lot of the research around friendships because the challenge, two challenges I faced when writing the book is when I was writing about love and marriage, like it was really hard because there's so much research and it was just like working in the coal mines to get through it all to find the the diamonds, you know, meanwhile, uh, looking at friendship, I had the exact opposite problem, which is there's very little, you know, research comparatively on friendship because think about it. If your marriage is having problems, you might go to a, a marriage counselor. If your kids are having problems, you might take them to a child therapist. There's there's no formal institution for improving your friendships. You know, there there isn't a body that is in charge of monitoring this and improving it. And that's what I really found with the issue of friendship was that, like, friendship, oddly, uh, makes us happier than any other relationship. You know, I apologize to all spouses out there. But uh, this is work by Nobel Prize winner Daniel Kahneman. You know, friends make us happier than anything else. But friendships are really fragile because we don't have that institution there. You know, if you have a contract with your employer, you have a marital contract with your spouse. You know, you're 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 if you don't take care of your kids, the state will punish you and take them away. If you're not good about friendship. There's no accountability. There's no institution behind it. And so this creates an interesting double-edged sword in the sense that on one hand, friendships are really fragile because there's no institution backing its interests. On the other hand, that's one of the reasons why friendships make us so happy is because it's always voluntary. It's never obligatory. There's never anybody telling you you have to see your friend. If you don't like your friends, you don't spend time with them anymore. So friendship is very fragile. But that fragility proves its purity because if you don't like them, if they don't like you, it's over. There's there's no formal obligation. So friendships are powerful, but to your point, they require that proactive nurturing because if we don't do it, nobody will. It's a, yeah, it's like an unregulated free market without government intervention. It's just it just happens, and it, the demand and the uh, the supply and everything works itself out uh, kind of naturally. There there is no friendship SEC. There, yeah. <laughs> there, there is, there is, there is, there is no, there, there, there is no stimulus for friendship unless we do that ourselves. That's funny. Yeah. And, and although we do have those, those friends are in our friend group from time to time that will act like a, like a regulating body and try to, you know, pull everyone together and keep glue in place. Well, that, and that's really something that's really powerful because like the sad news is, um, you know, the research says that after seven years, 50% of close friends won't be close friends anymore. You know, it's like we we move, we change jobs, we lose interest, we lose touch. Uh, but kind of to your point, one of the most powerful things we can do uh, to improve our friendships uh, is something really simple, and that is to introduce our friends to one another. Because when your when your friends are one off, like you were saying about that friend who pulls people together, well, if your friends don't know one another, they they can't really do that. If your friends are all one off, then there's no ability for coordination. When you introduce your friends, your one-off friendships become a community of sorts. One friend can say to another, hey, you know, he's feeling down. Why don't we, why don't we take him out? Why don't we throw a party? Why don't we do something? Friends can coordinate, and there's a synergy in that. But when our friends are just, you know, kind of isolated, like hub and spoke, you know, there isn't that ability to have this communal activity, 
where people can work together to kind of like revitalize the relationships. Yeah, it's a, you create you're creating a more uh, like more receptors, like more of a web that that works. Yeah. It's like decentralizing the the friend group and creating like a you know kind of a a nonlinear relationship with everybody. Yeah, that's cool. And like, what what really stood out for you when you're going through this about the other side of it? Like, what what can you do proactively in addition to what you just mentioned to to start forming in more relationships in in a way that's intentional? I mean, you know, what was really funny was when I first started looking at it, I, I, for friendships, I looked at like the place we all go, which is Dale Carnegie, How to Win Friends and Influence People. Everybody knows that book. And what's interesting is Carnegie wrote that book before the advent of social science. So it's, you know, it's all anecdotal. But the funny thing is, researchers have tested and the vast majority of what he talked about in the book, you know, is accurate. He was only wrong about one thing, which is he, he said, he said, put yourself in the other person's shoes. And it turns out we're actually pretty terrible about that. But, um, but in general, you know, he's expressing similarity, you know, a lot of these things are really valuable, but what it really comes down to the trick, I think we, a lot of us have, you know, uh, the problem a lot of us have is strengthening friendships is, you know, you get a chance to meet people. You can ask friends, you can, you know, hang out, ask friends to invite other friends, you know, join groups but like, how do we get past that acquaintance phase? How do we deepen our friendships? You know, that proves really tricky for a lot of people. And I found looking at the studies, it comes down really to two things, and that's time and vulnerability. You know, it's like, these are the things that we should be looking for in other people. And also that they're the strong signals we should, we should show. Making time for people kind of obvious, but it's really critical. You know, it's like the more time you spend on somebody, that's not, that's not telling somebody you care. That's showing somebody you care. If I give you an hour of my time every day, I can only do that for 24 hours, 24 people. That's it. End of story. No discussion. You know, so making the time is a really powerful signal. And when other people make time for you, that's a powerful signal. The second is vulnerability is like opening up because we're usually reluctant to talk about, you know, our fears, our doubts, our weaknesses. But again, that's not talking. That's not saying you care. That's showing you care. It's showing someone you trust them. If you tell people things that could be used against you, that might not make you look good, that's a demonstration of trust. And it's one of the most powerful things you can do in terms of improving relationships, not only for the other person and for the relationship, but also for yourself. Robert Garfield teaches at University of Pennsylvania, and he found that not being vulnerable in your relationships is correlated with more illness, more heart attacks, and doubles the chance that a heart attack will be lethal. Eating healthy is an investment. It's an investment in yourself, but it also often requires an investment of your time. But good news is Factor has delicious ready-to-eat meals that are ever fresh and never frozen. They're chef-created, dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. With Factor, you can choose from a weekly menu of up to 35 options, including popular things like Calorie Smart or Keto Direction or Protein Plus or Vegan and Veggie. Also discover 60 more add-ons every week like breakfast on the go, lunch snacks, beverages to help you stay fueled, feel good all day. And we know our listeners here at The One Thing are focused on health and health goals. That's why we choose to partner with Factor. And if you visit factormeals.com slash 150 and use code 150, you can get 50% off your first month plus 20% off your next month. Again, that's factormeals.com slash O-N-E-5-0 and use code O-N-E-5-0 to get 50% off your first month plus 20% off your next month. Wow. I, I love what you're saying about deepening relationships. I feel uh, for myself personally as time has gone on and you know your your a lot of your focus goes to work and career and you know maybe uh, like marriage if if uh if that if that's what you're into i'm getting married in april so that that's oh, congratulations oh, thank you very much uh, i've noticed that that the new relationships become a little bit more surface level and it's not as deep as as they used to be and it almost it, there's a line blur between like professional networking and relationships and it seems very surface level and uh some of that the the old uh i guess the behaviors that i would embody when i was younger in a, in a friendship just seem they don't seem to come out as much anymore no it's it's really hard and you know and the pandemic didn't make it any easier uh one of the one of the other 
key things I, I talk about uh, in terms of issues of community, you know, the flip side of what you're talking about is loneliness. And loneliness is correlated with like every negative health statistic you can imagine, like, which was not fun for me because I'm writing the book cooped up during lockdown, reading about how terrible being alone can be for you, which no, was not wrong. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Very, very related. But, but what I found when I looked deep into the research on loneliness is that we get loneliness all wrong. Uh, Fail Birdie uh, teaches at University of York and she's a historian. She looked back through classic texts looking for, you know, mentions of loneliness. And this is an exaggeration, but not by much. What she found is that before the 19th century, loneliness pretty much didn't exist. And that sounds crazy. But the issue was that back then you couldn't live an individualistic life. We, you know, it's like you would die for most of, you know, human recorded history. It's like if you didn't have, you know, other people around, you'd starve to death. Like exile was the worst thing that could happen to you. And not only that, we also had strong communities that we were embedded in. You know, it's like religion was really important. Tribes, groups, families, like, you know, individualism didn't really rise until the 19th century because, frankly, you know, human beings, we, we weren't wealthy enough to be able to live these sort of individualistic lives. And that's when loneliness was actually, believe it or not, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, that you first start hearing the word lonely used with this negative stigma. Before then, it just meant something that is by itself without any of the negative connotation. And that blew me away that like loneliness is actually a pretty new phenomenon. But the, uh, the other thing that was really crazy was John Cacioppo, who was the leading researcher on loneliness. He found that lonely people don't spend any less time with others than non-lonely people do, which again, seems shocking. But when you think about it, we've all felt lonely in a crowd. You know, just because you're on the subway surrounded by people doesn't mean you can't feel lonely. You know, you could be surrounded by people New Year's Eve in Times Square. You know, that doesn't mean that you don't feel lonely. Loneliness isn't, you know, about proximity to other people. Loneliness is how you feel about your relationships. If you're surrounded by other people, but you don't feel close to them, if you don't feel like anybody cares about you, you feel lonely. Meanwhile, if you go on a business trip, and you're far away from friends and family, you don't immediately fall into the depths of despair with loneliness because you know that your relationships are good, you know that people care about you, you're just away from them. So treating loneliness is less, you know, I mean, obviously spending time with people is good, you know, but it's less about that issue of just being around people and more about like we were talking earlier, deepening those relationships so that you feel like they're strong, that your perception of them is that your relationships are healthy. Yeah, that, that, that makes a lot of sense. The depth, as you said, and, or like the quality of the connection over just the quantity of people you're surrounded by. Yeah. Yeah. And what about having not only the like quality of connections, but having a diversity of thought in your friend circle and, and, you know, having different types of friends that maybe have different values than you do, not, not in a way that's negative, but in a way that maybe challenges your perspective. I mean, it's really critical because one thing is that like context is so important. You know, we bond with people most strongly often over similarity, you know, and so we, we need to, we almost need to work hard to do that because it's valuable to get other perspectives, but there's a natural pull towards similarity, which again, can help us make friendships when we find similarities, even if they're trivial with other people. But on the other hand, well, like I said, it can be tricky at first. We need to push a little bit harder because naturally we're going to gravitate towards people who are very much like us. So it's really critical, but across the board to realize how much your context influences you you know, if you want to be a well-rounded person, having, you know, different types of friends is really powerful because Robert Sutton, who teaches at uh, uh, Stanford's Graduate Business School, he says, whenever you start a new job or whenever you're, you know, whenever you're about to take a new job, look around at the people that work there because you're going to become like them. They're not going to become like you. You know, we have a very powerful pull towards not only similarity, but also trying to fit in, being like others. So if you're surrounded by people and you don't really want to be like them, 
then that can be a negative as well. We have to be very careful about our, our social surroundings. So we, we have to kind of thread that needle of wanting to keep, keep an open mind, having a diversity of perspectives. But we also have to make sure it's like if you're spending time with people that you don't want to be like, uh, that's really hard because the, the, the research shows that you are probably going to become more like those you're surrounded by. That's a really interesting point to make around the balance because you, you, you probably want to have, you don't, you don't want to end up gravitating into, a, as we hear this so, so often, like the echo chamber of your own belief system that you just, you don't, you're not challenged in a way to think differently. So you don't, you don't want to just surround yourself by everyone thinking the same way all the time, but you don't want to surround yourself by people who, who perhaps you maybe don't want to share the same thought process with too much because you'll, you'll just naturally absorb that. Well, that's what's really interesting is when you, a lot of people often talk about the echo chamber issue when it comes to uh, being online with social media. But the truth is when you look at the research, the, you know, what we read online, I mean, generally we gravitate towards things that are, that reinforce what we already believe, but that's not where the biggest echo chamber effect occurs, you know, not remotely. The biggest echo chamber is our friendships you know, is the people that we're around. If if our friends are all saying the same things, that influences us dramatically more than, you know, what you're reading online from who knows what, you know, somebody who you don't know. Because the, the issue here is, and it's often subconscious, is that, you know, when you're reading something online, you might disagree with it, that's fine. There's no social penalty for that, you know, versus... If all of your friends believe something and disagreeing with them is going to cause you to be exiled or cause you to be disliked or less respected, that impacts you know your life and your emotional state much more dramatically. You know, so there's much bigger penalties for disagreeing with people face to face. So echo chambers, we get concerned that it's it's this online problem. And the real echo chamber effect is the people that are around us every day. Yeah, that's interesting. And I, I, tr- I try to, or at least I, I believe I try to, to be as curious as I as I can be. That's why I love doing this podcast. But it, it's it, it's trying to understand other perspectives. And even though, because maybe you do, there is a different perspective in there. And if if you're if the group is overwhelming with this this air quotes echo chamber, then it could limit some of the thought and and you kind of just assimilate into the group versus just being open to having conversations and being curious about what other people think. And that's okay. Like you don't need to be of the same exact beliefs all the time to be friends with somebody. Yeah. And the bigger danger isn't, the bigger danger isn't even the social penalty of disagreeing with people necessarily. The bigger danger in terms, in terms of wanting to be an open-minded person, the bigger danger is that you start self-silencing. Mm. Is that you 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 stop you know thinking those thoughts and debating those issues because you're afraid to say them, and then you're going to be a less open-minded you know person because you're you all of a sudden all of a sudden debating you know ideas or discussing things you know doesn't feel safe, and so you internally start shying away from from those things. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. I, I was having a conversation recently with someone about how sometimes you actually need to intentionally let go of either groups or, or particular friends because you're trying to surround yourself. You're, you're moving. You're in, in your mind, at least maybe you're progressing into a new place and you're trying to grow. And so, you know, cutting ties with certain groups of people or, or potentially cutting ties with a, a particular person allows you to kind of move to a new place that you want to go to. Um, what thoughts do you have about that? And like, and maybe even some of the resistance to doing that because you don't want to be alone, you know, and you just kind of like, ah, I'd rather just stay where I am because I'm comfortable, but that's limiting your ability to go to a new place and grow as a person. Yeah. I mean, you know, we, we don't have to cut people off necessarily. You know, we can just talk to them less if it's, if it's, <laughs> you know, if it's just, if it's just an issue of time. Um, you know, but where it does become a real issue, I talk in the book about the, the issues of toxic people and toxic relationships. And it, it's some really interesting stuff, again, because there's a lot of counterintuitive insights there. We think that we might get most stressed out by, by people we regard as enemies, but that's actually not the case. Uh, we get most stressed out by frenemies. We get most stressed out by the people who 
it, he had the, the technical term in the literature is ambivalent relationships. You know, those are the people that stress us out the most because it's an issue of control. It's an issue of knowing what to expect. Your friends, you know, you're going to get supported. Your enemies, you know, they don't like you. These ambivalent relationships where are they going to be nice this time or are they going to be a jerk this time? That's what raises our blood pressure and drives us crazy. And the the thing about that is that uh, this is work by Julianne Holt Lundstedt. She found that ambivalent relationships make up 50% of our relationships. And we don't see those people any less than our real friends, which may sound crazy, but it's not. If you think about how many coworkers, how many neighbors, how many in-laws, how many people do you kind of have to deal with who you may not really like and at times may drive you crazy. So it's those ambivalent relationships where, you know, if we can see those people less, that would probably be, you know, helpful in terms of reducing stress. But when it really gets difficult is when you're talking about toxic people. And so I talk about the issue of like narcissists, you know, and to your point, the literature there is clear, which is just don't deal with them anymore. Just run away. Like, you know, it's just like, don't deal because, and most people feel guilty about that. Kind of like you said, most people feel bad. And the truth is, we would often be better off for people who really are toxic, who really are, you know, manipulative or difficult. It's much better for us to just not deal with them anymore. Uh, yeah, I see what you're saying. And I think that was the context for that conversation was they had some toxic relationships and they were okay. in a tough place. And they were saying, hey, in order for me to, to grow and get or become the person I want to become, I have to not surround myself by this this toxic relationship. Yeah, I mean, that's, you know, you can cut ties and, you know, often <laughs> you you, <laughs> you will be better off, you know, uh, because it's just not a net win. And when it turns into a jousting match, if somebody really is, you know, cluster B, like narcissist, it's like to do what it takes to maintain that relationship, you know, you're you're kind of going to poison yourself for like other healthy relationships. And you don't you don't want to have to change who you are, you know, in, in a bad way to, uh, to have to deal with people. Something that, uh, I'm going to see if I can articulate this, that there's, as I've, as I've, you know, grown up, matured, friendships have taken a little bit of a, like an evolution. And I've seen more of this around where, you know, there's the quote, you're the product of the five people you spend the most time with. And so people, as they, they become more intentional about their careers and what they want to do they're they, they select friends, uh, based on like maybe what they have or or how they behave because they want to be surrounded by uh, people that they want to to be in in um, to share skills with or something like that. And when when I, I feel like at a younger age, or relationships happened a little bit more organically. Like it was, you know, you intercounted interacted with people and you you built friendships. But later, it feels more like calculated. Is there anything you could share about uh, that, or if that makes sense uh, about this? I guess you become a little bit more driven in a career or something that, or, or who you want to become as you get older, that your, your choice in relationships becomes very like calculated versus organic. Yeah. I mean, you know, what you're saying is definitely true. It's like when we're younger, you know, you meet a lot of people through school who are generally more social. We generally have, have more free time, you know? And so, you know, making friends at college isn't nearly as hard. You're surrounded by people your own age who have some things in common with you. You know, as you get older, a lot more time demands. Um, the issue here is is to be more strategic on both fronts. You know, where in terms of, like I said, for the friends you do like, you do care about, you know, to time and vulnerability. It's like strategically deepen and cement those relationships and sustain them. You know, there was a study at Notre Dame. They looked at 8 million phone calls. Uh, over a period of time, and they tried to track like which which friendships sustained and let, stood the test of time. And the big the big insight that came from that study was keeping in touch every two weeks. That was a really good sign that friendships were going to last. So being more deliberate in the friendship front, but on the flip side, it's like hey, networking is extremely important. I talked about that in, in Barking Up the Wrong Tree in my first book, and networking is really powerful and. You know, but it's it doesn't have to be icky. It doesn't have to be like purely transactional. You know, a good way to start networking as opposed to just, you know, running around looking for people who can do favors for you. Uh, a good insight from the research there 
is to leverage our super connectors. And what that means is that if you look, you look down your like contacts in your smartphone, you'll see that a disproportionate number of the people you know were introduced to you by a handful of people. You know, there are some, there are hubs in the network. There's like one person who is responsible. There's like five people who are responsible for a disproportionate number of friendships and contacts. So both as a time saver, but also in terms of doing networking in a way that isn't icky. These are people who, you know, you have a connection with. If they're a decent person, their friends are more likely to be decent people. And they do this naturally. They've already done it for you. So to reach out to them is kind of like card counting for networking. Those are the people who are really going to be helpful. You know, and another really probably the easiest way to network in a ethical and friendly way is to revitalize dormant relationships. You know, if you go and you looked on LinkedIn or Facebook, you're going to find a ton of people who are probably doing really well, who you might be able to help them, they might be able to help you, and you're already friends. You just haven't talked to them in two years. So to like revitalize that relationship, that's the easiest and simplest way to network. And there's like, you know, very, very little downside at all. No, that's good. It's good insight. Uh, for, for the other side of that coin, if you are a superconductor and, and, and you're, you're constantly like you're trying to connect with everybody, is there some risk or something you need to be considerate of when you're thinking about quality over quantity and just you know, focus on trying to build deeper relationships in a smaller group? Is there maybe a balance to that? I mean, it's there's always going to be, you know, a, an issue of balance. I think that, you know, if you're pretty introverted, I'm very introverted, but if you're if you're pretty introverted, um, that can feel overwhelming. But honestly, it's not usually as overwhelming as you think. Like you have a lot of relationships right now and you might be surprised if you if you check like how often do you need to check in with people to sustain that? It's not really that often. You know, there's some people you probably talk to annually or maybe less, and it's still, you know, a good relationship. So it's really not as hard as you think, unless you're unless you're already doing great and everybody wants favors from you and everybody's paying you every day. I mean, on a network level, on a friendship level, sure. I mean, Robin Dunbar at Oxford has done a lot of the research on like, you know, they call it the Dunbar number like how many friends we can really sustain. And it's shocking how consistent those numbers play out. Like human beings seem hardwired, you know, for a certain number, like 150 is probably the the limit that we can actually say are like somewhat close, somewhat connected. Um, But again, it's not that hard from a networking perspective to have loose ties with a lot of people. And then it's just a matter of saying, hey, you know, who would I like to, to be closer with, you probably know who those people are. You want people who are going to reciprocate. So that's going to limit it to a degree as well. And then you just make the time for those people. The issue isn't so much that it's necessarily hard. It's just we have to be deliberate about it. And to your point, when we're young, it's it's just easy because it because organically our environment provides us with it. And when we're older, we need to Think about it, be a little more strategic and deliberate, both on the networking and the friendship front. Mm, makes sense. You, you mentioned something before about keeping in touch every two weeks is kind of a good a good measure. And I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because we'll, we we ask people when we're doing goal setting activities, I mentioned this before, that let's say they do so like, hey, I want to I strengthen a relationship. And we'll say, hey, set a goal for the year. Like, what would that look like? What would success look like this year to strengthen that particular relationship? And the intent is to make it more specific and if possible, like some some measure, like how would you know if you improve the quality of that relationship? And that can be hard for somebody when it, you get into the less tangible to to make it more specific and measurable and say like, hey, here's what success looks like. And they'll they'll gravitate to, uh, okay, well, I, I'm you know what, I'm going to, let's say it's with, with my brother. It's like, ah, you know what, I need to at least reach out to my brother once a month and have a conversation so that it'll show up on our, our accountability worksheet. We call the 411. And they'll say, okay, my goal for the year is to average like one conversation. Let's just say two, because that's what you said, two conversations a month to uh, to reach out and just connect. And and then you know they hold themselves accountable to doing that. Do you think that's a good way to approach uh, at least getting the momentum going in a relationship is to get something like that? Like hey, make, make two calls a month. 
something. I mean, that's that's a good concrete that's a good concrete action to take. But in terms of goals, uh, you, it's important to remember that there's two sides to this point. You know, it's like if, if your goal is make more money, then you do the things, and if the number goes up, you know, great. A relationship is a two way street. So on one hand, yes, you want to make sure you're doing your part, but there's still the issue of, are they doing their part? So with your brother, you know, there's the issue of, you know, how close do you want to be? How close does he want to be? Mm. You know, so, and with friendships, it's even, you know, more tricky. Uh, Just that issue of what comfort level is that person at? Maybe there's somebody who you would like to be close friends with, and they're kind of cool with acquaintances. You know, so you want to gauge the other side as well, where are they reciprocating? You know, it's like if you're <laughs> yeah. calling twice a month and this person never proactively reaches out to you, if you're offering to do them favors and they're never offering to do your fa- you favors, if it's all on one side, you know, then yes, you you are checking your boxes, but I don't think you're you're necessarily getting the goal and you can't make somebody, you know, want to. Uh, be your friend. So there is that issue of monitoring. It's like, hey, this person's really cool. You know, they're cool with acquaintances. Okay, well, then maybe I should only talk to them every six months. I'll proactively check in. I'm happy to do that. I like them. But to hone in on, hey, every time I reach out to this person, they, you know, a little bit later, they, they initiate, they, they do it. Hey, sometimes this person thinks of me and they send me or or offer me things. You want to look for that reciprocity because, you know, again, both parties have a say, both parties get it. So it's not, no matter how hard you work, you can't necessarily achieve the goal of success unless the other person's on board. So that's just something to keep in mind in terms of the, the, the end result you're trying to achieve. No, it's, it's a great call out. You don't want to put make so and so my best friend as your as your annual goal, <laughs> and keep driving at it if they're they're not going to work it back the other direction. I mean, it you know because it's 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 just important to make that distinction where if if my goal is increasing my bench press, you know that's all on me and that's something to the limits of my genetics. All I have to do is put in the effort. Maybe there's issues with nutrition. Maybe there's issues whatever else, but it's all on me. You know, there's not another variable that I that with a friendship, you know, again, you you have a rate limiter in there, <laughs> which is the other the other person gets a say. So you you can't treat that the same as increasing your bench press. Yeah, it makes perfect sense. And and that's good. You know, I, it comes up and I'm, sometimes I'm not as a, as a coach or just just uh, giving advice. I don't know where else to take it for them other than you know, just keep an eye out for it and make the effort. And what's the one thing you can do to try to improve the quality of the relationship? What's the thing you can control? Jim, I was just curious if you had, you know, any insight from your experience on where you could start or focus when it comes to, you know, I, I want to be intentional about this relationship. I think there's something there. I mean, it's the, those two factors, time and vulnerability, you know, where it's like spending more time, you know, and like, if again, if the person is reciprocating, Okay, maybe they have a different goal for this relationship than than you do, and both sides get a say. Um, you know, I mean, it's not rejection, but it is like dating in the sense of you know, both sides need to be on board. And uh, and then there's the vulnerability issue where you know, I in the book I call it the scary rule, where I say you know if something is scary to you, that is probably a good sign that it's, you're being vulnerable. You know, if you're reluctant to say it, I know you don't have to confess to any murders, but like just, you know, start small, you know, talk about fears, concerns, weaknesses, things that might not make you look good. Does the person reciprocate? If they do, escalate. If if they say, oh, man, I've dealt with that, too. I'm having problems with X, Y and Z. Then you can then escalate it to the next level and talk about deeper things, because, you know, we if reciprocity isn't there, then, you know, you're not going to be able to take it that much further. But with some people, it takes time. You know, some people, that's why, you know, it's not like one try and you're done. You know, you know, see, you know, make the effort. But it's it's something that we 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 can do more in terms of making the time, making the invitations, 
We can do more in terms of opening up a little bit, talking less about facts and more about feelings. And those are really powerful, uh, really powerful tips that we can use. Makes, yeah, it makes a lot of sense. What about for you personally, as you as you went through this, if you don't mind me asking, as you went through writing this book and, and doing the research, and has anything really shifted or changed for you uh, with your friendships or uh, the way you approach it now? I mean, one thing that always happens to me, whether I'm writing my uh, my blog or, you know, book, the book on success, the book on relationships, is I am constantly flooded with all the things I'm doing wrong. You know, it's like to, to always just be looking at, oh, man, I'm screwing that up. It's like, definitely, you know, I'm not the most open person. I'm I'm pretty introverted. I'm not the most social person. But just realizing, like I said, when I talk about super connectors or revitalizing dormant relationships or even just being a little bit more vulnerable, you know, it's like these things don't have to be hard. And sometimes they pay big benefits. And, you know, for me, especially coming out of the pandemic, you know, it's like my job as a writer basically means spending enormous amounts of time by, by myself. So it's it's like knowing this doesn't have to be that tricky. It's been powerful to me to, you know, to not only make more time deliberately for friends, but also to really pull those friends in closer by opening up. And also, like we talked about earlier, introducing friends to one another. Like it's really valuable. It's really helpful to have you know, not a few separate, isolated people thinking about you, but to have a group of people who are talking and thinking about you. You know, it's it's really great to potentially have a, a, a collection of nice people who are conspiring to make your life better. I like the way you said that. I'm sure so many people can relate. And I know for me personally, I did a a little bit of a career pivot at, right before COVID or like a, a couple of years or a year and a half before then COVID, which was like two big stones in the relationship pond uh, in, uh, in the course of short order. But so many people I, I, I'm sure can relate to having uh, at least the, maybe you have your inner, your really inner sphere that's still there because the the connections were so strong, but certainly like, like the second circle and third circle of, of friends, that analogy makes sense, um, were disrupted by uh, the last couple of years. I mean, the, the positive end on that is, you know, is it gives us all something that we have in common. Like it, it kind of gives us uh, a mulligan of sorts where it's like, if you haven't been in touch with people, Everybody dealt with some tough times, you know, uh, with the pandemic. Everybody let relationships slide. Normally, we feel guilty or we feel bad, like reconnecting with somebody because what if, you know, what if they're pissed at us? It's like we kind of all get a pass to a degree. So in that way, that's kind of the silver lining is that we, you know, now's a good time because everybody understands because everybody has had some kind of interruption or shift to, to their relationships. Such a great way to turn a challenging negative into a positive, like you said, mulligan, and uh, just put put another ball on the tee. And <laughs> hope you don't hit it in the water, but it's it is a great chance to to reset, you know, relationships that have uh, fallen off. And give yourself permission to uh, to walk back into it. I mean, it's it's been a tough time for everybody. You know, it's something that we we all have in in common, and so starting afresh, making that time, opening up a little bit, you know, it, it all gets a, a little bit easier. Sadly, it's because of COVID, but it's, 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 since it's there, we can, we can make it of it. Yeah, definitely. And as you, as you wrote the book and you're doing the research, we talked about it a little bit, but what was the thing that stood out for you the most? Like what was really like the most shocking? Like I can't believe this or, you know, really caught you by surprise. I mean, you know, lots of things, uh, you know, there were, uh, I looked at kind of, you know, our ability to read other people because we hear that don't judge a book by its cover yet. We all do. Uh, and so it was funny to see Nicholas Apley at university of Chicago did research that in terms of knowing what else, what's on somebody's mind when we're talking to them, uh, we are terrible at this, <laughs> you know, basically like we think we have a good idea of what might be going on in somebody else's head when we're talking to them. But literally, we only accurately uh, surmise what's what's going on in somebody's head. Uh, with strangers, uh, we hit 20%. With friends, 30%. And with spouses, we top out at 35%. So whatever you think is on your spouse's mind, two-thirds of the time, you're wrong. 
I'm probably and lower than that, by the way. I'm probably like I, 5%. I, I'm with you, man. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's really tricky. You know, uh, in terms of that mind reading, we are not good at it. Uh, on the flip side, what's, what's kind of surprising is we're actually very good in general with first impressions. When we're first sight, we first meet somebody and we're sizing them up. We're generally accurate on key personality variables, roughly 70% of the time. Now, granted, that's not 100%, but 70% of the time, determining whether somebody is extroverted or introverted, whether somebody's conscientious or not, you know, whether somebody's successful, you know, 70% of the time we get that. But the, the, the double-edged sword of first impressions is that while we are more accurate than not in general, those first impressions tend to stick. So even if they're inaccurate that 30% of the time, those impressions tend to, to stick. We have to be really careful that we don't let those, you know, kind of get too fundamental and kind of color our perceptions of that person uh, forevermore afterwards. So yeah. it's, it's really interesting in terms of how we perceive people because, you know, one of the key things people always like, people really nerd out over body language. And the truth is the research on body language, it's really overrated. Uh, we, we, without a baseline, unless we know somebody really well, you know, body language is, is not that useful at all. We don't know if somebody's shivering because they're nervous or shivering because they're cold, you know? So what actually pays bigger dividends is to pay attention to their voice. Uh, it's funny that this is a podcast. Uh, you will actually, you know, anyone listening will have a better read on me than they would if they could see me, but not hear me when we can see people, but not hear them. Empathic accuracy drops off 54%. Interesting. When we, can he when we can hear them, but we can't see them, empathic accuracy only drops off 4%. So the voice is actually a much bigger tell in terms of reading what's going on with somebody than any of the, the little tidbits we hear about crossing your legs or uncrossing your legs. Yeah, and you, you don't know if somebody's like nervous or something and they're they're not acting like they normally act because they're they're in an anxious environment or they're disrupted in some way. So there's probably signaling something different than what they intend to. They could have had a bad morning. They could be worrying about something that you don't know about. And you're reading that as they don't like me or they're angry with me. And it's like, no, you know, they they're you know, their kids doing terrible in school and they're concerned about it. And they, yep. and they didn't mention it. So, you know, you don't know. But one of the other things that's a good takeaway that uh, I looked at all the, the research on lie detection, which is really fraught uh, because most of what we hear about lie detection is not based in reality. Uh, first of all, people lie a lot. Uh, college, college students lie in about one in three conversations. Uh, adults in about one every two. Uh, we lie most often to mom. Uh, we lie least often to our spouse, but we tell them the biggest lies. And detecting lies is really tricky. Uh, believe it or not, the the the, the uh, polygraph, the lie detector, was actually in part created by William Moulton Marson, who is the same guy who created the DC Comics character Wonder Woman, who has the lasso of truth. Yeah. Um, and the lasso of truth works in the comics. Uh, the polygraph does not work, uh, so it should not be used. But we often think that lie detection is about stress detection, and that's how the polygraph works. And that is not true. You know, we often think that there are body language tells, and there are not. Uh, the best correlate, the most useful thing in terms of detecting lies, actually comes down to what's called cognitive load, and what that means is. Basically, telling lies requires a fair amount of brain power. You have to think about the truth. You have to think about your lie. You have to monitor the other person to tell if they're catching on. As you say more things, you have to update your model in real time. Like it actually uses a surprising amount of brain power. So, if you up the cognitive load, if you make people think harder, it makes lying more detectable. Because much like when your computer is chewing on a hard problem and it slows down, or you get the little spinning beach ball, or like, that's the same thing is basically when you ask, when you told police officers, instead of asking yourself, is this person lying? Instead, ask yourself, do they have to think hard? That shift in frame 
was enough to improve their lie detection ability. And the best tip we can use directly is to ask unanticipated questions. If you ask questions, a liar can't prepare for every question that you could ask them. So if you ask questions that are very easy for someone telling the truth, but very hard for someone who is lying, then your, your lie detection is going to improve dramatically. The example I use is if you're a bartender and somebody comes into the bar who is obviously underage and you ask them, how old are you? Well, they're going to say 21. But if you ask them, what year were you born? That's a really easy question for someone telling the truth to answer. But somebody who's lying is probably going to have to do some math and they're going to pause. They're going to slow down. And they've seen this. They've done research on unanticipated questions with airport screeners. Normally, airport screeners only detect 5% of lies. When they used unanticipated questions, that shot up to 56%. Interesting. Yeah, okay. So if, if you want to, uh, if you're trying to get to know somebody and you want to throw them a couple curveballs to, to see, you know, test character a little bit, you can uh, ask something really strange like, hey, what color underwear are you wearing? <laughs> well, I mean, you could, if somebody says they were at the meeting yesterday, you can, you can just ask them, oh, you were at that meeting? Was Sarah wearing her red scarf? Yeah. Because if you were at the meeting, really easy question to answer. If you were not at the meeting, you don't know if she's wearing a red scarf. In fact, you don't know if Sarah was there. So that's a potential minefield for someone who's lying. And they will also know that it is a potential minefield. And they will probably slow down. They will might deflect. They might, they'll try not to answer the question directly. And that's really the trick. Those unanticipated questions are really powerful. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. I just learned a lot about lie detection that I did not know. So <laughs> thank you very much. But we, we talking about like body language. Uh, you said you said before that first impressions are really you know seven, higher percentage of of accuracy. Um, you said I think you said seventy percent. Is yeah. that in part because when you're gauging first impressions, it's more of like like a macro signal. It's like the the big stuff. It's like what you're wearing, like the you know some of the 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 way that you communicate they're just broadly or it's it's easier to detect and then when you're getting into more of like the nuanced kind of next level conversation that it's it's harder because that's that's where you're trying to get more finite in detection uh, yeah i mean basically it's like we we are actually really good at what's called thin slicing there's a whole vein of research on this where you know if you show a video of a teacher in front of a class to study subjects and has no audio and they just watch the video for a few minutes. You know, again, with roughly 70% give or take accuracy, they will be able to tell you how competent that teacher is. They will be able to tell you key personality variables. You know, we are very good in general about, like you're saying, those big macro kind of things. Uh, and you know, the the other issue is like when you spend more time with people, you you get more if people are faking, you know, I, I got into all the issues around impression management um, with time. It becomes harder to sustain the ruse. So we're 70 percent in general. And as long as we keep an open mind, we keep questioning as we get more information about somebody. You know, it's easier to tell, you know, whether this is really true of them or not. But also, you know, there's another takeaway from all of this research, which is if you're meeting somebody for the first time, do your best to make a good impression. Because yeah. like I said, <laughs> it sticks. It sticks. They will anchor on it. So it's, it's really important to make a good first impression. The other important uh, takeaway, uh, kind of like secondary tidbit here, is your positive impressions will always be more accurate than your negative uh, impressions. And that's simply because if somebody makes a really bad impression, um, in general, what are you going to do? You're going to try to spend less time with them. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. Now you're not getting a second shot to figure out whether you were wrong or not. You know, if, I mean, if somebody makes a positive first impression, but they're really a jerk, and I hang out with them three times, five times, ten times, I'm going to start to see cracks in the facade after a while. But if somebody's just having a bad day when they first meet you and you don't hang out with them anymore, you never get a chance to correct your error. 
So giving people a second chance is really powerful because otherwise your positive impressions will always be more accurate than your negative impressions and you're ruling people out. And like I said, 70% is pretty good, but you wouldn't want your kid to bring home all D's. So, you know, 70% of first impressions is not perfect. It's good feedback. So there's this combination of don't judge a book by its cover and and also give people a second chance, like be be willing to, uh, I guess, determine whether or not that was perhaps a bad day or they just um, didn't make a first a good first impression. I mean, how I phrase it in, in the book is that, you know, we're always going to judge a book by its cover. You know, by our by your very nature, your brain starts sizing people up and making judgments about them in mil- literally milliseconds. You know, so we to say don't judge a book by its cover is kind of impossible. The, the thing we can do that's reasonable and fair is we can try and be more aware of the judgments we're making and be open-minded enough, challenge ourselves to revise them and make them more accurate because we immediately, you know, do that. And that's something that's not going to stop. You know, you wouldn't want people to be a blank in front of you. So we're making judgments. We just need to be cognizant of them. And then we kind of need to stress test them. Like, you know, is this something that's very clear? Like, you know, okay, they murdered 10 people. Okay, they're probably a bad person. Versus, you know, they're being snippy. Okay, well, maybe they're having a bad day. You know, it's like we we just want to be a little bit more rigorous about kind of stress testing. We want to make sure that the, the ideas that are immediately start popping into our head, that we treat them like hypotheses. We don't treat them like laws of nature. Oh, I like that. That's really good. I, I was gonna say from my own experience, I think that that stands up like the 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 statistic, the split, the 70-30. So I, I would say roughly, you know, three of ten times I'm I'm pleasantly surprised or or just surprised at how different someone is from what my first impression was. And once you get to know them a little bit more, you're like, oh, you're not at all like what I thought. Um it happens even on this podcast, it happens all and with my team, things like that. It, ha- it happens in all, all different facets of relationships. But I really like what you'd said that that makes a lot of sense. Just just keep keep going with it. And for me, I think it's like staying curious about it and don't don't just you know put put that in a in stone what they are and, and lock it in. Just continue to stay curious and give them the opportunity so that you can unpack what's really in there. Oh no, that's curiosity is a very healthy perspective, you know, on that. Because what you see when you when you look at the personality research, it's like for the big five, the five fundamental personality traits, those stay pretty consistent across the lifespan. Um, you know, there are some predictable changes that are common, but people's personalities are pretty consistent throughout their lives. But that's not the best, most granular way of evaluating personality. What the research says is the most granular way, most more concrete is to look at who people are in context. You know, is that there are some people who, you know, are very conscientious uh, in their personal relationships and are a total flake at work. Uh, You know, people are more nuanced than that. There are some people who are very cold and distant uh, with strangers and acquaintances and business contacts who are actually very warm when you get to know them. So, like sizing people up, even with, like I said, formal studies, uh, is very valuable and generally consistent across the lifetime, but it's really not as accurate as seeing who you are in this scenario, who you are in that scenario. That's when we really start to see like even much more predictable consistency in terms of who someone is and how they behave. Love it. Eric, if, Somebody wants to learn more about, check out your book, learn more about this topic and, and more about relationships and how to play well with others. Uh, where can they find you? Uh, well, uh, both my books, Play Well With Others and Park Up Grown Tree, both available in Amazon and other fine retailers. Uh, I, my blog is uh, ericbarker.org, E-R-I-C-B-A-R-K-E-R.org. And uh, there I regularly post about you know, self-improvement and, you know, other issues around psychology and signing up for my newsletter is the, uh, is the best way to keep abreast with the insights I'm finding. 
Oh, cool. I hope they come check out your material. It's it's really awesome and great timing. As I told you, we, we're focusing on uh, relationships right now and in, in this, this topic. Uh, if you could have our listeners take away one thing from the conversation today, what would it be? Uh, it would be that friends make you happier than any other relationship. If you are trying to improve your happiness, you know, time and vulnerability, you know, spend more time with your friends, open up to your friends. This is a really key way to have a happier life. Awesome, Eric. Thank you so much for being on the podcast and having this conversation today. It was great talking to you, man. Thank you. Thanks for listening to The One Thing Podcast. If you're a bold risk taker who wants to dream big and achieve a higher level of success in your life or business, visit theonething.com. There you'll find information on one-on-one coaching, our exclusive community membership program, and customized workshops that will help you get your team or organization aligned and rowing in the same direction. That's T-H-E, the number one, dot com to start living the life you've always dreamed of today. Be sure to follow the show to stay up to date on weekly episodes, guest interviews, and more. Plus, we would love to hear from you. Send us a voice note by going to speakpipe.com slash the one thing or email us at podcast at the one thing.com. We'll see you next week.